All right, what up, what up? Episode 14 of the Stiff Shots Podcast, and we got a corker for you today. Because not only do you have me, star of stage and screen, very famous Ryan Rainbow, you got the birthday boy, Rick Jimenez, and also we're going to have a special guest running from Tom Williams of Stray from the Path. So get those rock stars shaken up and crack them open so you can spray from the path because we're going to be going over the G1 Climax Final. We're going to be talking about the AEW Road to All Out and also other news and tidbits. But first, I got to ask, Rick, how you doing? Man, I am old as fuck, but I have three brand new toys. I went to Hassle Toy, which is a brand new store exclusively selling wrestling merchandise on Long Island, so you should definitely check them out because um, Mitch fucking rules. It's a really cool store. They have a whole bunch of really radical shit, and he gave me a great deal on the retro Daniel Bryan and Bray Wyatt figures that I missed about a year ago. So I figured, hey, it's my birthday. I'm going to buy myself two toys. And what happened? They were gifted to me by my wonderful girlfriend instead. We got a deal from Mitch. It was right. That guy is cool as fuck. Well, hey, Mitch, you know, if you want a a full-time sponsor on the show, let us know at Stiff Shots Pod on Twitter and Instagram. But we're going to let this one slide for free since you dealed it up. In addition to your birth being big news, we also have the Blockbuster announcement. That's right. This announcement put yellow and blue video head system cassette stores out of business. NXT, which stands for Next, coming from the World Wrestling Entertainment Network to the United States of America Network very soon, and, and later on in September, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I believe um, the second or third Wednesday, 18th maybe, September 18th. That is uh, some big news, because it's not only going coming to cable television, but also it will now be live and two hours. So doubling the length, completely changing the format, and changing the platform on which it's on. So... Uh, big news. Want to be optimistic about that. Of course, NXT, uh, a, a precious baby in my eyes. And of course, you don't want to see anything uh, change for the worse. But, you know, there's a lot of possibility for it to change for the better. Of course, whenever anything changes, it has the possibility of changing for the worse. But I'm I'm remaining optimistic about this. I think it's going to be cool. I'm hoping it's going to be cool. And if not, we got, like I said, on our last NXT TakeOver show, we got a pretty flawless presentation for several years worth of specials and story arcs so maybe uh maybe it's the end of an era maybe it's the beginning of a better era who's to say yeah i've had mixed feelings about this and it's funny because i think a lot of people will have a strong opinion one way or the other and they go to the internet and then everybody sees what the cool opinion is and they just follow it where so the majority of the people that run to the internet only run to the internet to say the worst shit. So they're like, oh, it's going to change. It's going to be just another third brand, which it already is with Raw and SmackDown. But you know, Vince McMahon's going to get his hands all into it as opposed to it being Triple H's deal. And it's going to change it significantly. But I feel like everybody being so negative to it makes me want to like it that much more. And like you said, hopefully it's just instead of one hour of – great television a week it's two hours of great television a week and the format of the way that they do their production the way they do their storytelling doesn't exactly change there's just more of it and now it's live or every other week or or what have you um the reports on that have been conflicting but either way like you said nxc has been so great since the first the first show on the wwe network and all the takeovers and everything 
So even if it does go downhill, you know, we have seven years to look back on. Seven years is longer than Nitro was on the air. And Nitro was the biggest thing in the entire world for quite a while, but only had a couple of actual years of, of greatness. And look at all the lasting impact that has had. But I think one of the main things, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is, of course, everybody's running and saying, oh, NXT is just going to USA to counter-program AEW. And they even pushed to have it premiere an entire month before AEW and all this stuff, as if NXT hasn't been on the network every Wednesday for, what, six, seven years now. And NXT is so big now. Like, we spoke about this heavily on the 205 Live episode. Although NXT is supposed to be the developmental, NXT has been essentially a third brand legitimately for, for quite a while. And if USA is losing SmackDown to Fox and they still want to have that two hours of programming, it is perfectly natural for them to want to have NXT and for WWE to move it from exclusive to the network to being on network television. It, to me, it, like you said, it's a perfect evolution of it. Hopefully it, it stays as great as it's been. But um, I'm, I'm all for it. And I think anybody complain the same people complaining about it counter programming AEW are this usually the same people that harp and harp and harp about how the Attitude Era was so much better. It's like, oh, so you love the Attitude Era, but you don't like head to head comp- competing fucking wrestling. It's only going to make everybody that much better. AEW won't be able to rest on their laurels as being the internet darling promotion, and everyone's going to watch it just because. If you like wrestling, you're on the internet. You're supposed to watch it. Like They have to actually compete for wrestling eyes. And NXT has to do the same thing. NXT doesn't want to have just the same amount of viewers that they get on the WWE Network just transferring over to the USA Network. They want to have like double, triple, quadruple the amount of people. Otherwise, I'm sure USA is not going to be very happy. So everybody has to up their game. And if NXT is upping their game, that means WWE is upping their game. And if WWE and NXT are both upping their game, AEW, who has jumped into the whole entire wrestling fray, knowing that they have to up their game just you know from a startup situation, they have to up their game that much more. So they can't even have anywhere close to not their greatest TV show or greatest outing on their first TV show, and they have to outdo that every single week for for a long time. I would say a good six months to get to get a, a foothold and make sure that at very least people are watching AEW live and DVRing NXT and watching that later on. Um, so when you think about it from that point of view, it's all excellent news from a wrestling fan standpoint. If, if anyone's complaining about it, man, you're just looking for fucking bullshit to complain about. When now we get two hours of our favorite television show of wrestling to counter produce a two hour show that we've never seen before, but everybody's like chomping at the bit to see. I think it's going to be rad. I'm, I'm looking really forward to it. Like you said, especially if they don't really change much of their approach, but I'm sure some of that's going to change also. Last I read was. The show is still going to be filmed at full sale. No, I definitely think it's cool. And the idea of counter-programming is, you kind of alluded to it, 
is really dead at this point in the sense that you just DVR the other thing. It's not like in the 90s where you had to pick which one to watch because your VCR wouldn't record one while you were watching the other or whatever. It's You can watch both. You just watch one first. And, or you can do the really cool thing and flip back and forth between the channels. But if you want to watch one of these shows or both of these shows, you can and will. Also, the idea that AEW hasn't been taking shots at WWE since before they even existed is lunacy. So it's funny to be upset if that isn't exact, or rather if that is exactly what they're trying to do. If they are trying to counter-program them, why wouldn't they? They've been <laughs> getting shit-talked for the last, you know, six, eight months. Do something about it and, and shut them up. So uh, everybody wins, like you said, in the sense of the wrestling fan. The wrestling companies win because they have motivation to, to be better and do more and, and be exciting. And we get even more NXT. And two hours is a, is a perfect length of time. I mean, I love the one-hour NXT show. But two hours, I'm not upset about. You know, it always uh, feels like that's kind of been the the best length for a wrestling program, especially with how much talent they have on NXT now. As much as I love the one hour format, you can still get even more people on the show without it being overly saturated. So I think it's only got promising anticipations from me. Of course, things can always not go the way that you want them to, but until that happens, I'm going to try to remain optimistic about it. So that is NXT. Now we move on to their pseudo-competition. And I say pseudo in the sense of it just doesn't exist yet. AEW with two new episodes of The Road to All Out. Two of the weirder ones, if we're being honest. Uh, and we are. That's all we do here is tell the truth and speak the honesty. But the first one is really weird because it's about the best friends. And I guess maybe it's supposed to be like deliberately weird, but... It doesn't really, the, the great thing about all these episodes have been, even when it's somebody that I don't necessarily care about, like Nyla Rose we talked about before, who I know you're a big fan of, and maybe I don't necessarily connect with her, but at least fleshes out her story. This episode about the best friends makes me even less interested in them, and it almost seems like they're not interested in being on the show either. It was very strange to me. Did you get that same vibe, or do you think that's just the gimmick or their character, or what, what was the deal with this? Whether it's their gimmick or their character, I did actually feel you worded it perfectly. It seems like they don't really give a shit about anything that that. And I like Trent Beretta, but you know, like I said, it, I don't know if it's part of his character. It seems like he's just very apathetic. The the most charisma he showed is when they showed the outtake of like, "Hey, did you always want to be a wrestler?" He says yes, and he laughs and he falls over. Um, Chuck Thomas, Mister Taylor, um, I don't know, man. Guy guy's not funny. I think he thinks he's funny. He's not in shape. I don't give a shit about this. Um, the way that they are trying, I guess, trying to be funny, talking about the Dark Order. You know, the Dark Order sucks. I think they could have come up with better jokes to make. Uninteresting. I, I care about this angle even less than I ever have ever before. So fuck all these guys. Yeah, it was uh, definitely just kind of put me off even more about it. Made me not even think that I should. Made me think that they don't think I should care about them, which is... Uh, a weird approach, I thought. I already don't really like them. Don't like Chuck Taylor. Like you said, he's out of shape. He made a funny tweet to Daniel Bryan once about how it that the indies are in such bad shape that he's a big star in them. So I thought that was cool. Uh, Trent Beretta, I, I like him enough, but this made me feel like I shouldn't. And then, like you said, the Dark Order are kind of a layup to make jokes about, and they couldn't really execute him. So it's kind of weird. We see Alex Alvarez, I believe is his name, the announcer guy from the first all... Uh, the Double or Nothing pay-per-view. Oh, Marvez. Talking. Oh, Alex Marvez. I'm sorry. Alex Marvez, we see speak a little bit 
about the upcoming all-out pay-per-view as well. His ears just sticking eight inches away from his head in this control room looking green screen. And this guy uh, just doesn't do anything for me. I don't understand his his uh, role that they think he's executing. But seems like a nice enough guy, so you know, good for him. But hey, guys, if you want to hire me instead, uh, I'm offer only. And he's swinging it to a promo in the ring at a live event by Hangman Page. Uh, thought it was cool. You know, definitely puts over his character more. So if you're already into what he does, like I know you, Rick, are, then you're going to be even more into it. Well, he, here's what's cool about that. First off, we spoke about Horseface Harold, so I like that. The thing that I really like, which I hope is going to dissipate, but in the buildup to AEW's first show, I like that they're doing run-ins and matches and promos for AEW in other independent promotions. I think that's a really not just like cool and innovative innovative idea it's very smart for them so they go to these indie promotions and make everybody think we're just indie guys also like we're one of you guys now watch us on the big on the big stage and then all those you know indie for life you know wwe is the worst uh all those people are gonna flock to you know major trillion dollar corporation tnt and watch AEW thinking that they're just indie guys, even though these guys are just as corporate as fucking Apple, which I'm fine with all of that. I think it's actually really smart. And I think from an optimistic point of view, I think it's really cool that now that, you know, even though they're not major uh, mainstream stars, Adam Page is a big name in wrestling and the Young Bucks are a big name in wrestling now. So they're going to these other promotions and, you know, House of Glory. One of my friends works under House of Glory. So I think it's, or trains under. It's cool going to those promotions and kind of giving those promotions the rub. Everybody helps each other in that way. Um, I think once AEW is on major television and it's really its own thing, I don't think that they should stop helping these indie promotions. But I think the AEW guys need to come across as AEW exclusive. So it's a really big deal if they do something different. So like when a WWE guy goes and does an Evolve show, it's a huge deal as opposed to, oh, yeah, you know, they're on WWE, but they take their own bookings all the time. I think AEW needs to follow that mold a little bit more also to solidify from a casual point of view that they're actually major superstars and not just indie guys that wind up on a television show sometimes. The flip side of that. The negatives that I found no positives in is Kenny Omega trying to convince me that he's going to fight another man with any sort of passion. Yeah, I think I was close to saying, oh, this isn't even like a terrible promo that he's doing. And then I realized, well, first off, it's all edited together, which is fine. It is goddamn television. So edit the fuck out of it. Make it sound good and look good. And well, it can only look so good with that motherfucker on the screen. But there's like scoring music behind him. And even though that might not like, Oh, who gives a shit? There's a little bit of music behind him. That little bit mixed with the editing audio and the editing video, you're essentially putting together like a movie scene. So he sounds like, Oh, Kenny Omega is doing a good promo. We all know he's not actually doing a promo. He's delivering a fucking script and it's being edited like a movie. So um, I'm looking way, way too into it just because I don't like him. I didn't look into it enough because I don't like him. Oh, he's talking. Great. He's going to fight somebody. Who cares? All right. And then finally, the quick three-minute episode six of 
the road to all out was just Brandy Rhodes cutting a promo on Sean Spears, which is interesting because uh, she's not fighting him. But I guess the story that they're trying to tell is that Cody's too emotionally wounded to even address Sean Spears. And in all reality, it's a very good promo that Brandy delivers. I wish it was her delivering it to somebody that she is actually having a beef with, but maybe it's all to lead to her being the, the second in Cody's corner where Sean Spears has Tully Blanchard. Not sure. Um, like I said, it's it's well-performed. It's cool information, I guess, just kind of talking about how being a Rhodes just puts a target on your back and how people his whole career have tried to hold Cody down and how Sean Spears is, you know, just a flash in the, flash in the pan. But, you know, why not have Cody do it? Why is, is Brandy doing it? Who knows? Know. Maybe she'll turn on him. That would be cool. Brandy, that would be the most Dusty Rhodes thing ever, right? Brandy, MJF, and Sean Spears all turn on Cody, and then all the baby faces come out to help him. That would be like some, some Dusty, dusty yeah. classic. All right, well, that is going to do it for the, the news and notes of the week. And now we are going to bring you to the G1 Climax final, and the G1 Climax in general. But first, we got to run in. All right, so we are joined by Tom Williams of the band Stray from the Path. We're going to be talking about the G1 Climax 29, as well as mainly focusing on the final. But, uh, Tom, did you get to watch a lot of the G1? I got to watch all of the G1 matches. I barely watched any of, like, the six-man tag stuff that happens before the G1 stuff, um, with the exception of the final, because I, you know, kind of got spoiled about the big return or whatever, so I made sure I watched that. But, uh, but yeah. I watched a good amount of it. Very cool. Well, yeah, I know that uh, Rick didn't get to watch a lot of it, just uh, sheer time constraints, but I, I know that we all watched the final. I was just going to ask you before we got into the final night, what were some of the matches of the other nights that were some of your, your favorites and who are some people that you kind of turned around on throughout the tournament? Because I know there's a few combatants that you may, maybe at the beginning I was not so high on and then by the end of it I loved or vice versa. I thought that I liked them and then after seeing them do nine matches in a row, I was kind of over it. um i will say i'll touch on my favorite ones before um and then people that just kind of completely like shine for me um i had so here's the thing to do with new japan and and myself because there's just so much wrestling now it's it's tough to kind of keep track of all of it so when i watch new japan i kind of just pay attention to like you know the main titles and like the upper card kind of stuff so like Someone like Lance Archer and, like, Shingo Takagi, like, they kind of – I just missed them. So, like, I watched this Lance, Ar- Lance Archer match versus Will Ospreay the first night of the G1, and I love that dude. I thought he – like, he came out. I'm like, this dude sucks. Like, immediately he, he's wearing shit that looks stupid. Um, he, he just looks like, like a jobber, like WWE guy. So I was like, this guy – I was just – I just wasn't into it. And I was like, he's – facing Will Ospreay, so maybe it'll be cool. And the match was sick. And throughout the, the tournament, like, that was one guy that um, uh, kind of stood out to me. And, um, I mean, I loved John Moxley a lot. Um, and, I, you know, I liked Dean Ambrose a lot up until he won the title at Money in the Bank. Like, that was one of my favorite cash-ins. And, you know, I liked The Shield a lot. Like, it was cool. But then his title reign to like him leaving, I was just over it. And, you know, a lot of him, like like his running and hitting the ropes and like his moveset, like 
And like even like the stuff he was doing as a WWE champion with like the sandwich that he brought to the ring one day where I was like, this is crazy, right? <laughs> so, so, so I was just kind of like over it, but I was very obviously like a lot of people was very excited to see what he actually had because I never watched John Moxley matches before Dean Ambrose. So to me, like it's Dean Ambrose and that's the start. So, I mean, his matches with Juice were so good, both of them. Um, uh, I think probably my favorite, maybe the 1A or 1B of the entire G1 was him versus uh, uh, Ishii. And so he, he just, he just, he was great. But like you said, like how after you watch like a million matches of him and then I started seeing like his Yano match and stuff, like it cooled off a little bit. And then from someone that I started the tournament like kind of over and then towards the end of it, I thought, was amazing was Jay White. Yeah, Jay White definitely playing the role of the ultimate heel throughout this whole tournament to a T. But the show actually opens with the Clark Connors and Carl Fredericks being showcased, two of the young lions from the LA Dojo versus Ren Narita and Yota Suji. What do you guys think of Connors and Fredericks? Yeah, I saw I saw them at uh the Rev Pro thing during the WrestleMania weekend. No idea who they were at all. And then they came out, I forgot, I think I can't remember who they, they fought, but the place went nuts for these guys. It's nice that Revelation Records has a wrestling promotion now. <laughs> I went to Rev HQ yesterday, and it was like, they haven't updated the site in 20 years. <laughs> was Dan Tur there selling false silent CDs? <laughs> uh, I did type false silent into the search to see what was going on, though. <laughs> that is actually true. Recently, uh, I have a friend that got rid of all of his CDs, and he asked me if I wanted them because he knows that I'm the only moron still keeping compact discs, and he lives in Atlanta. I live in South Carolina, and it just became really difficult to schedule a time to go pick them up because he was like, I'm not shipping these CDs, and it just kept on happening where I couldn't go get them. So I have a friend that was actually in Atlanta not long ago, and I was like, hey, man, while you're in town, can you go ahead and grab this uh, box of CDs for me? My friend's been holding on to me. He's about to give them to Goodwill. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So then he sends me this picture. It was not a box of CDs. It was seven moving boxes of CDs, like 2,000 discs. And I've just been going through them. And the, the collection is very eclectic, to say the least. But it's got some really cool stuff in there. And I've just been kind of whittling my way through it. I feel like I live in the Rev HQ of 1997, except instead of Fall Silent and Once, what was that band? One Step, the first step. Instead of that, it's uh, Machine Head and Corn. So then I open up the sixth box out of seven. And on the top of the box is a large, like, not velvet, but like this pseudo-velvet lining. And I remove the velvet, and it is an urn of The Undertaker. Urn Anderson was in the box. <laughs> All right, so the first match with main roster talent and also G1 Climax competitors on this G1 final show is uh, the team of Taguchi Japan, represented by Jeff Cobb and Jushin Thunder Liger, and Tiger Mask 4, who is not in Taguchi Japan, but he's part of the team, uh, facing Suzuki-gun, Lance Archer, who we mentioned earlier, Taichi, and Kanemaru. Now, before we go any further, I know, Tom, that you didn't necessarily watch this match, but Jeff Cobb, you've watched throughout the tournament. Uh, Jeff yep. Cobb is definitely one of my least favorite wrestlers in the world. I really, really? dislike... Uh, Really? I, I hate I hate the whole trope of well I'm I'm a fat guy who moves like a regular size guy, and um, <laughs> True. 
and I don't like his Bet face. You didn't think I could moonsault standing <laughs> right, right. up? I get that. So but, that being I said, mean, that I get dude, that he's good. I get that he's good. Yeah. I don't, I'm not ignorant to his skill. It's almost like uh, he's like the rush of wrestlers for me. I get that he's talented. I just don't care. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I definitely. I mean, I get that. I definitely hate that stick of just like, oh, I bet you didn't think this was coming. I get that, <laughs> but I mean, the dude looks like a like inflated pool float. He does move around so good, and I, like again, I, I know it's just like kind of like playing into your your opinion there. But I mean, I just love his finishing move. I just love his his uh, athletic stuff, and I don't know. I but I do feel like at least for me, like the only time I the first time I heard about him was when he won the Battle of Los Angeles like a year or two ago, and it was like, oh, Jeff Cobb wins, and because I think it was against Brody King, and and. Um, and I thought Brody was going to win that, so I may be wrong there. But anyway, so I heard that he won. I was like, who the hell is this Jeff Cobb dude? And then from there, I found him out. I don't know. I just I just think he's good. But to me, he's still just kind of finding his way. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he had a really good G1. It wasn't, like, unbelievable, but it was, like, a good showing. <laughs> I don't know about least favorite of all time. I mean, I do get it, but it's just like, I don't know. I think his finishing move is cool. I think he looks, like, even though he's, you saying he's like kind of like a big fat guy, but I don't know if he's fat. He just looks crazy. I don't know how to. I don't know how to describe it. But I think well, he's let, awesome. Let me assure you that he is fat. But the funny thing about him and Ricochet for me is, I was a huge Lucha Underground fan, and in Lucha Underground, he was Matanza, Ricochet was Prince Puma. I loved both of them. They both had masks on, and they never spoke. Then they both removed their masks, started speaking words, and I can't stand either one of them. So it's very uh, interesting dynamic for me. Something about, so like you talked about his finishing move, it looks way more brutal to me when he's wearing a cabal mask and like a jump, a slipknot uh, Iowa era jumpsuit than when he's wearing a wrestling singlet with Spanx trying to hide that gut. But guy's cool. For sure. I, I See, I never watched Lucha Underground to that extent where I'm just like, like I had no idea he was even in there until the second. You know what I mean? Like, and honestly... If he's wearing, if he looks like he's in Slipknot 1999, awesome. I definitely like that better, you know. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just still kind of getting used to him. But from what I've seen, I definitely think he's good. Yeah, you know, there is nothing about Jeff Cobb that I don't like. Oh God! I <laughs> so I'm going into the the first day of G1 knowing that you hate him, and I'm watching. Uh, it was him and Narita versus. Um, Umino and Ishii. And I'm thinking, I don't know what it is about him that Ryan doesn't like. Um, and that match, to me, built a ton of intrigue between the his match, Cobb's match with Ishii. But I like Cobb. You know, but I mean, I always like the Samoans. I, I always like when the bigger guy isn't just, hey, I'm a fat guy and that's my gimmick. But when they kind of have that rhino comparison, that like early rhino body, especially, you know, it makes perfect sense with the singlet. And, you know, he reminds me a lot of early rhino. But he's, you know, he, to me, he has technical skill. Um, so, you know, I, there's nothing about him that I don't like. Well, I don't want to make this whole show about Jeff Cobb, but if you think that ECW rhino was anywhere near as fat as this slob is, you are 
mistooken. Maybe present day running for office rhino who looks like a peep that got microwaved for too long looks like Jeff Cobb now. But they are Jesus not the same. Now, now, I will say this. Again, rose-colored glasses for being in the audience of night one of the G1. His tag match with Narita and Ishii, and then the following match with Ishii, because I love Ishii, the Stone Pitbull, I did enjoy. And it's not that he just doesn't do things that I can't enjoy, just in general. Uh, and a big part of it is just the acclaim he gets. I'm sure if nobody liked him and he was the exact same wrestler, then I wouldn't even think twice about him. But the fact that he gets so much hype it, you know what it, it's just that i'm jealous because i also want to be fat and liked by people but instead i'm thin and gorgeous and no one likes me so hey man just... i even if you just don't like them just because you don't feel like liking them i get that man you know fuck amazon yeah. but yo so when uh archer's team's coming out that fucking pop punk slash garbage <laughs> metalcore mix of entrance music so same thing Archer in this tournament really turned me around. That Osprey match, I loved. And I was like, dude, Archer looks like a, a fucking monster here. And he performs like a monster. And, you know, I also like Osprey. So, you know, I'm like, this is, this is great. And then that fucking music, I was like, come on, man. Why are you ruining this for me? But, so that aside, Jushin Liger has had the same entrance music for fucking ever. So... A couple of days ago, prior to watching this, two days in a row, his music comes on shuffle in the van. And every single time it comes on shuffle, it starts, I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, oh, this is Liger's music. And then it gets to the fucking chorus. So it's Jushin Liger. Um, dude, that music is fucking hilarious. But, and it rocks. But aside from that, who from the 90s has the same entrance music their entire career? Can you think of anybody? Well, I was actually thinking about the other day how uh, Shawn Michaels still comes out to the, you know, sexy boy from the 90s. But I get what you're saying. He, he yes. Yeah. I mean, or, did, or is Undertaker's like updated? Oh, dude, Undertaker's had so, he's gone back and forth. But last I checked, I had 37 different versions of Undertaker entrance theme. So that's probably like 15 different versions of the regular belt tolling shit. Yeah, plus, and then, plus you know, Limp Biscuit, like I, which I completely forgot about. Yeah, so the Limp Biscuit, the, the Kid Rock versions, the Dead Man Walking. But, um, you know, Shawn Michaels had uh, a few. And then since he started singing his own Sexy Boy, he's had that and he's had the DX. But, um, but that's it. You know, there's probably there's probably a very small amount of wrestlers from the 90s that have, you know, had less than fucking five different themes, but let alone have stuck with majority just one the entire time. But well, I love has, that. Has Ric Flair ever come out to any other song besides the one he comes out to? So Flair had a different version in his first WWE run because they didn't own the actual Space Odyssey. Oh, true. Yeah. So. True. It's interesting that that comes up because I was watching an old Flair match uh, the other day. I don't remember what it was from. It came on, like, randomly. But it was um, – fuck, I think it might have been a, like, 2006 match or maybe, like, a 2004 match. And they had him using the 91-92 Flair music, which I thought was odd because once – WCW closed, he came to WWE. It was his traditional NWA WCW music, only with the woo in the beginning, which isn't in, in the original WCW version. 
But um, yeah, Flair, aside from any horseman incarnation, just Ric Flair, as far as I know, has and only ev- had and two. evolution too. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's had all the horsemen, different versions. He had the evolution yeah. uh, theme. But aside from that, yeah. Yeah, um, he also uh, he also had a different theme in TNA, and his WWE ver- theme song has had a couple different versions. I know that we recently watched uh, SummerSlam 2002, and the version he comes out is slightly different. I'm not that, saying that's the- that's what it was. That's what we were watching that, and it's the 91, 92 version of his entrance. So, so I wasn't watching in 2002, so I don't know if he actually came out to his proper music or the old WWE music. So. I almost assumed that the SummerSlam 2002 that's on the network is the commercial release of SummerSlam 2002. So if you were watching the pay-per-view in 2002, he probably came out to 2001 Space Odyssey. But then when they released it on Video Head System, of which I bought in 2005 at Toys R Us for $3, they used the music that they owned outright for commercial duplication. No one cares about this shit. <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting. Cause I mean, you could also kind of consider Chris Jericho. I mean, he used the same one, didn't he? It's, it's had like 10 different versions though. I mean, it's all the same songs, just updated versions. Same with the rock, huh. you know, every year or two, True. they would make a different uh, recording of it. So, is it the same song? It is not to be like nitpicky or whatever, but it is a technically a different recording. Before of it. before we get back into the G one, but I was watching a some retro Attitude Era shit, and um, I think it was when Mankind won the title on Raw. Is what I was watching. But anyway, he came out to what his his theme song was before the fucking Dan in it, Dan it, Dan it, that one. It's yeah. insane. I don't remember that song at all, like at all that like weird creepy one yeah as mankind he actually had entrance and outro music it was two different songs it would be like this weird happy uh uplifting song when he won and then it would be that creepy music that you're talking about when he first came out so uh but yeah because he didn't do the thing that you're thinking of until he was like straight up mick foley like after he was mankind no he had he had the upbeat music as mankind but he was uh mr sacco mankind oh yeah yeah you're right you're right that was after he uh Visited Vince in the hospital and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Man, man, man. Man, 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 man. So the next match is going to be Chaos, which is uh, Sho and Yo and Will Ospreay versus members of the Bullet Club, Chase Owens, uh, Bone Soldier, and the Tokyo Pimp, Takahashi. Uh, this is a match, for sure, between six people. You can't argue that. Uh, I do like Sho and Yo. I like them more as a tag team than as individual competitors, but they are a tag team in this match, so that's cool. Uh, Tom, you kind of alluded to earlier that Chase Owens is not in your top 50 wrestlers of all time. Do you want to talk about worst wrestler of all time? Like, this guy fucking stinks. Like, I don't, (laughs) I do not get it. And he's in, like, like, I get, like, the Bullet Club maybe at this point in time isn't the hottest thing in, in wrestling anymore but like how the fuck is this guy even in the, in the bull club like i get it he's the guy that eats the pins like i get it sure but he sucks he looks like shit like the guy looks like he works at like a video game store and i'm just like i just don't get it almost dude a couple of years ago i took i took a handful of wii games that i didn't use 
and brought him the Chase Owens. And I was looking to like, <laughs> oh, well, maybe I'll have enough money to get a fucking cheese hamburger or something else that I would actually eat. And those motherfuckers are like, oh, well, here's 50 cents. Yo, Chase Owens should have a match with Chuck Taylor. <laughs> and that match should be on the edge of a flat earth. I really do think that it comes down to his ring gear. Like, his ring gear looks so backyard wrestling with just a Bullet Club logo. It just He just looks stupid. Like, it, it's not that he's, like, a bad wrestler. Like, I mean, I don't think he's a great wrestler, but he's fine. But it's like, he just does not look like... Like, this guy was in a match with Will Ospreay, Show and Yo. It's like... And Ishimori, who looks like a statue. Like, the guy looks amazing. And it's Chase Owens. Like, I just, like... I don't know. Can't get into it. This is what I have in my notes about Owens. Owens is grosser than ever. (laughs) Yeah, he he looks terrible. And like you said, he's next to Ishimori, who probably has one of the best bodies in the whole company. Pause. And then also you got Tokyo Pimp, who's just cool as hell. Man, so show rocks. Peter rocks. Show is so good. Um... Osprey's Stormbreaker looked better than ever. I, this was a fun match. Nice and quick. Yeah, I do like that most of these matches leading up to the final were very brief um, in the sense that they mm-hmm. got in what they needed to do and, and got out. Uh, the same can be said about the next match, which is Juice and uh, Hanari versus Moxley and Shota. Uh, you know, really which, kind of just, put over- just for the record, this is, when I, this is when I started watching the show from this match. Okay, cool. So you have... Uh, some more insight into these matches. Now, this match is cool because it does a couple things that prove me right. It, uh, <laughs> it shows the rivalry between Juice and Moxley, which I really love, and that it's not over because they still kind of have that U.S. title situation. Although, Juice has been the U.S. champion a couple times now. I don't necessarily need him to recapture it, but I do like the idea Agreed. of him kind of proving that he can be better than Moxley. It shows if you watch the rest of the show, especially if you watch the rest of the show, because people are really murdering each other from this match on. The Moxley's offense, whereas it's better than it's ever been, is just not as hard hitting as the rest of this New Japan roster. Uh, even not, maybe not as hard hitting as Shota, who, you know, of course, has probably been raised to be sh- the strongest of styles since birth with his little baby red shoes. But I did like that uh, <laughs> <laughs> this match continue that rivalry and it was quick and kind of just got to the point of you know kind of setting up that that third match that rubber match so to speak with with i wonder if i I, I wonder if well first of all to touch on juice i thought juice before the g1 was the biggest dork of all time like i hated the fucking uncle sam shtick he did with the dreads and the fucking i was like this guy absolutely sucks um now going into this and then he has the uh he had the match with moxley which i thought was awesome um, you know, he, he lost the hair. He lost all the ridiculous stuff. Like, he just became kind of darker almost, and which to me is more I like. So this tournament also made juice to me in a lot of ways because that's another thing is I was kind of hoping Moxley would be, like, the placeholder for, like, someone someone bigger, you know, to put over someone else. Like, to go, to give it right back to juice is just, like, it's, like, whatever. But now you're kind of starting to see a different side of juice that makes it a little bit more exciting. Um, I also think that Moxley calls uh, Shota, he calls him Shooter, which is the best thing of all time. Better than Okada. It's just the greatest thing I've ever. Um, and I think that dude is going to be sick. 
uh, I think at one point, didn't he, like, make fun of Juice and said he belongs in, like, Jazzercise class or something like that? Yeah, man, that that, that is some reference. I mean, like, some people, most people, I feel like, aren't even going to get that. It's so dated. No. It was kind of a weird joke. I, like, I don't know if I think it's great because it sucks or if I think, like, oh, you're better than this, man. I thought it was amazing because it was, like, there's probably, like, 600 people that know what Jazzercise is that are watching this. <laughs> I, and we're two of them? I, yeah, we're definitely two of them. Well, Ryan, and you I, definitely know Jazzercise. Oh, I'm, I, listen, I'm a student of the game, all right? All right. But... <laughs> So he just said that joke, and I thought that was great. So I don't know. I just I like that Moxley started to get a little bit more comfortable. Um, I wonder if also his offense kind of like I don't think it fell off as dramatically as maybe you're mentioning, but I wonder if he was just tired because like I don't think he's ever wrestled anything like the G1 before, you know? Oh, I don't think it fell off. I just think in comparison to other people, it's just not. Like he might not have it or something. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that'll just come over time. But no, I don't think that he showed less of a good showing on this match than he did the rest of it. And if anything, if that was the case, if he started off stronger and got weaker, I would love that because that's selling the grueling nature of the G1. So True. No, I, I'm still higher on him than I've ever been. So I, I hate to sound yeah. like I'm downing him. But uh, I just think that, you know, like when I saw that first Juice Moxley match, I was like, man, this guy is brutal. But then when I see, you know, Takagi... Uh, yeah. fight anybody, <laughs> and that yeah. tricep meat obliterates someone's face. I'm like, oh, man, maybe, maybe Moxley needs to just practice punching people for real. All I know is that he was doing that that thing, the two moves in WWE that made me hate his guts was he did this thing where he would get, like, Irish whipped and, like, he would act like he's falling out of the ring, but he'd grab the, the, the top two ropes and kind of come back in and do a lariat. I yeah. hated that. And then he would do this thing where he'd, he'd get someone in the corner and he'd clothesline them and then he runs and he like pushes off of, of the second turnbuckle and then does it again. But like he's running so slow, it like just looks like crap. And I, I was just like so over Ambrose. So it's like the fact that this entire tournament has been, it just shows you that what he's capable of and the more he's going to be wrestling with people with work rates like, you know, you know, Ishii and stuff like that, and, and Omega or whatever, like, it's just going to get better, in my opinion, so maybe he can't keep up with them now, but I think it's that, you know, you, it show, it's apparent that he can, like, he at least has the ability to. Yeah, Yo, and he do, looks great. His body, you know, as far as that looks like a complete transformation, he's much more muscular. I am, I'm with you. I used to really hate that he would do the, uh, the ricochet or whatever, lariat, whatever he called it. And then also he would do like a, I guess, kind of like a suicide dive between the ropes that looked like he was just kind of like lightly pushing people. Mm-hmm. Oh. More or less got rid of that. And then that standing elbow drop. All three oh. of those always looked just oh. like garbage, but he's gotten rid of those. Elbow and, drop. and even doing the, uh, the DDT, lifting them first kind of just makes it look more dramatic. And like, you know, because he looks like he's stronger now. So no, I think he's only made improvements. And I, like you said, I think he's only going to get even better and better the more reps he gets in with these guys. I and that's just, definitely I, a good, it's definitely a good, a good take on that too, because like, even like his double arm DDT and calling it dirty deeds. And then it's like, Oh God. And then now it's like, he still does that. But then he has like the extra level of, I, he calls it the death rider in new Japan. And then he calls it like, it's just the double arm DDT. And then it's the death rider. And then I think he called it the paradigm shift in AEW. And I'm like, just calling them something cooler makes it cooler and then lifting them up as high as he does like 
I just think that he's actually paying attention and, and, and it's just apparent like, okay, I'm going to do that finisher, but then I'm going to have a crazier finisher where I lift them like at a 45 degree angle and spike them on their head. Like it's almost like a DDT brain buster suplex almost kind of, it's just sick. Like it's, he's working on it and I could tell, and I could, I could, I could just notice that, you know? All right. So that takes us to the next match, which is uh, almost all of Taguchi Japan. We got the coach Taguchi himself, Makabe, Hanma and Toro Yano with uh, Goto facing Los Ingobernables de Japón of Bushi, Evil, Sonata, Takagi, and Naito. The whole, the whole gang's here. And this is a fun little match, again, just to kind of get everybody excited that they have everybody on the show. Not a whole lot of story involved here that I uh, really remember, but it was cool to see all of LIJ, even though they, they lost. So I don't know if it was that cool to see him. But um, Goto is another guy that's really turned me around on this tournament. You know, before he was just kind of whatever to me, but he just looks like a, a powerhouse, like a Japanese Big E that's ready to murder people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm loving it. Rick, what'd you think about this match? I thought this match was awesome. I thought um, Taguchi's football gimmick is so what the fuck to me <laughs> that, I, that I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, evil is as cool as ever. Um, man, Hanma is so funny to watch to me like just everything about him is is hilarious and but in a good way i don't like i'm not laughing at him but um but i sure am laughing i enjoy it <laughs> but um you know evil and sonata have sick double teams uh sonata with the muda finish oh i, I fucking loved it just hey a, a fucking body slam backbreaker into a moonsault the end i love it um, did this match need to be on this card? No, but you know, it gets all the stars out there. Sure. And I thought, I thought the opposite of what you said, Ryan, I thought it, it told a bit of a story for, for some of the guys. And I think telling a story for individual characters within a 10 man tag match is just something that I believe in America is just like, no way. If you're doing a 10-man tag match in America and you're trying to get a story across, you're essentially picking two guys in the match and they're telling their story somehow. And there's eight other guys in the match that are kind of throwaways where I didn't feel like that with this. Well, maybe I misspoke. What I meant by the story is, you know, the following three matches have intense story arcs that uh, are built up or continued or whatnot. I don't mean that the match itself didn't have back and forth that you could follow along. I mean that it didn't have lasting consequences as well, a result. To me, I feel like the the little bit of lasting consequences is a bit of Sonata not, I don't want to say breaking out on his own, but like oh, is Sonata the next standout or the, in LIJ? It's hard to say because like, <laughs> he's in there with you know, Evil and fucking Shingo and Naito, like and what Naito has the the IC title, but he was a bit of a non-factor in this match. Where, to me, Sonata was the star of this match, and I thought, um, from my point of view, that's that's what I got out of it. Like, oh, is he is he about to be the star right here? Moving I feel forward, like that's yeah, I feel like that's definitely where they're moving next. Is Sonata like? I guess um, I think they weren't they like teasing Okada and. Suzuki, or don't they have a match next for the for the title? That is booked, right? 
that, like that's just kind of like a match that of course everyone wants to see but like Sonata's like their next guy that they're going to try to make and I think Naito like his his because uh, I, I heard like Ibushi um, was talking about doing Wrestle Kingdom and headlining both nights and trying to get both titles from Naito and from Okada which is cool so I wonder if maybe that's why Naito was kind of just like he did his entrance everyone got to see him but really like this was teasing more like Goto Takagi stuff and making Sonata more of a standout. And I don't know. That's kind of what I took from it. From but what let's, I at least. let's not forget to reiterate just how fucking cool LIJ is just across the board. Like, and that's not even like, of course their in-ring work is, is like great to watch. And they're, they're all such different characters, but as, as a group, like Ryan, I don't need to say to you fucking, Naito, God, man, that, that guy is Kevin Nash levels of cool. 90s Kevin Nash. I think Kevin Nash is always cool, but now he's like old guy cool. Oh, but, um, man. Dude, like, I, I don't mean to, I'm going to jump back to the Moxley-Naito match. One of my favorite things of the whole tournament was Naito comes out and Moxley's just fired up, like so ready to go. And then he's wearing his fucking white suit and he's in the ring and he's taking it off so slow. And at one point, Moxley's like looking at him and then Naito stops undressing and he just looks at him. He just goes like, relax, I'm going to get it off soon. Like it was so fucking amazing. Like I just love Naito's whole attitude. But when he told Moxley to chill out and like let him get his suit off, I was like, this fucking guy is so goddamn great. Yeah, he's he's what I call impossibly cool. Like, it doesn't even make sense how cool Naito is. Uh, that being said, Rick, I know that you didn't get to see a lot of the G1, but there's a match between Sonata and Okada that you would definitely be well-served to revisit, and everything you just said about him being the next breakout star will be confirmed because yep. he is unbelievable in it. And so is Okada, of course, but he's yep. already the man. That was so. a top five for me. All right. Well, that brings us to kind of the the triple main event in the sense of storytelling here. We got the Bullet Club of G.O.D., Tama Tonga, Tonga Loa, and Bad Luck Fale versus Chaos, Tomohiro Ishii, and Yoshihashi with Kenta. Now, we've already kind of alluded to it, but really the thing that matters in this match. So even before we say that, throughout the tournament, Kenta has... Maybe it's bigger fanfare in the U.S. because we know who he is now uh, from him being in All Japan and Pro Wrestling Noah and then coming into NXT as Hideo Atame and having that brief 205 Live run. But in, J- in New Japan specifically, maybe not in the country of Japan, but in New Japan, Kenta coming in is not a well-received thing. He's kind of an outsider. He was never in New Japan before. A lot of people uh, mistakenly think he was. He was just in Japan. And mm-hmm. so him coming in and kind of getting this top spot in the G1 when people like a Minoru Suzuki or somebody like that, that they have well-established and already love not getting it, it's kind of uh, frowned upon in Japan. So he's, he's been quite the heel throughout this whole tournament, despite being, in my opinion, awesome. A lot of people think that he's a little slower than he used to be, and maybe he is, but I think he's great. And so that being said, he decides to really lean into that and joins the biggest heel faction they have with the actual most hated guy, on the whole roster, Jay White and Kenta becomes a member of the Bullet Club. And that, of course, leads to an even more exciting turn of events. But what did you guys think about Kenta's uh, indoctrination into the BC? So I, I want to give like a different outlook because the thing is, my knowledge of Shibata 
started with his injury and like find and then finding out this dude has almost died by doing the fucking headbutt stuff and so like that's like when i started finding out about this dude so i don't know the most about him i do understand that he's like one of the most prolific new japan wrestlers maybe ever right so just to i wanted to say that and then going back to kenta um i thought hideo itami was dog shit and i thought kenta coming in i was like okay this could be cool then he did his matches and i'm just like man you're like on pace with like toro yanu like i just don't i just don't give a shit like i i want to care but i just don't care um and then like even like shibata bringing him out for like and then him uh you know, announcing he's going to be in the G1 and whatnot. Like, I thought that was cool because I could at least respect that Shibata is that big figure kind of putting him over and whatnot. So I wanted to like it, and I just kind of didn't. So to me, him doing this um, and, like, screwing over, like, Ishii too, which is one of – he's one of my favorite. Um, so he, like, screws over Ishii, leaves him at the dead, which is going to make Kenta more hated. Then Shibata comes out, and like this is from someone who doesn't know the history of Shibata as, as the hardcore fan does, and he just fucks over Shibata. Shibata coming back, like I could feel how important that was without having to know. Like him coming back there and doing that, which I know he's not officially back, or he might never be back, but him doing moves for the first time, like it was just like I could tell it was important, and I was excited for something that I shouldn't have cared about because I just am not like emotionally invested in it. But that was sick. And then it was like, then you have Kenta, which he was like sitting on his stomach or whatever when Shibata was like all laid out. And then he's just like doing the too sweet thing and saying he's in Bullet Club now. It's like, it made me hate Kenta and now like him for hating him, if that makes sense. And also helped hate the rest of the Bullet Club, which I kind of didn't really care with the exception of Jay White. Like they just seemed like, you know, guys that thought they were cool when they really weren't. But I do like Tamatanga, and I think that like Kenta now is a hated guy for shitting on someone like like Shibata, and then it also made people hate Jay White for liking a guy like this too. And I just thought it was masterful booking. Honestly, I thought it was so sick. This was a perfect heel turn. Every, mm. every everything like that you just said just goes to show it. Where you don't need to know, you didn't really need to know anything. You just know that there's some good guys and there's some bad guys. And one of the good guys turned on the other good guys. And then some other guy is so mad about it that he comes storming out of the locker room and just beats the shit out of this guy who just turned on his friends. And then in turn, he gets his ass beat. And now like, all right, well, there's a bunch of good guys. One guy is ultra sympathetic and one guy is the biggest prick in the world. That is an excellent, excellent, just like dictionary definition of perfect wrestling booking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm with you. This is the most that I've ever cared about Kenta or Itami or whatever the fuck you want to call him at at any point. And I think facially he is a natural heel. When he came in as Hideo Itami, I was a little surprised he was like he was getting all the fanfare and they were bringing him in as this big face because he just looks like a heel. And I think that's a big reason, you know, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I think that might have been one of the reasons why they decided to turn him. Like his resting face, he looks like a shitty guy. So fucking go with it. 
And he was already a heel with me at the beginning of this match because he came in wearing a fake American Ice Age shirt. But he eventually takes that off, and then he puts on a fucking Bullet Club T-shirt, which, same mm-hmm. thing. I, I never care about the Bullet Club. And, you know, if I'm going to buy stuff from Hot Topic, it's probably going to be a Metallica shirt. So um, <laughs> I thought this whole thing was done just as excellent as as could be. The commentary over the heel turn, oh, excellent. Just so fucking good. I love when commentators are saying, like, God damn it, and yeah. go to hell, and blow your brains out. And, I was um, hoping to give Kevin Kelly, like, his, his own fucking podcast, because this dude kicks fucking ass. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever really... I mean, I guess I could always tip my hat to, to JR from back in the day because he's had legendary calls. But, like, as far as right now, no one can touch this guy. I agree. The uh, English commentary team for New Japan that they have right now with Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero, and then sometimes they have Don Callis, I think is just Don Callis, yeah. the best team in announcing right now. And I, I really love it. And I love how, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Tom. I know Ricky didn't get to see a lot of it, but the even cooler part about the Shibata thing, even for you not really knowing a lot about him, is pretty much in every Kenta match, they pull up the point. They pull up the point. They bring up the point whenever he does those drop kicks. They're like, oh, you know, Shibata is kind of who gave him these drop kicks. And there's matches where Shibata's even out there watching him wrestle. And then to see Shibata murder him with that same drop kick that they for four weeks have been telling us Kenta got from this man and just how insanely... Not just beautiful, but just like devastating it looked. It just made it all kind of go full circle. It was, it was really epic storytelling for me. Cool as hell. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to uh, the penultimate match of Suzuki-Gun, Minoru Suzuki, and Zack Sabre Jr. versus the gods, Tanahashi and Okada. And this sets up what uh, you mentioned earlier, Tom, as far as Suzuki versus Okada in the UK at the Royal Quest. For the New Japan uh, IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Because Suzuki, his whole thing, this whole tournament has been, he's pissed that he didn't get even a spot in the tournament. And then he pins Okada in this match and is like, you know, uh, you just got pinned by a guy who wasn't even good enough to be in your your 20-person or whatever person tournament. Mm. 20-person I'll let that out later and make it sound like I know how many people are in. (laughs) Um, I, I love that, though, where he was just like, I wasn't even in the tournament. I just pinned the champion. He pinned him clean, right, with just the, the pile driver, right? Yeah, the God-style pile driver pins him. No funny business. Uh, yeah. One, two, three. And that sets up that match for uh, Suzuki versus Okada in the UK, which is really cool. I mean, it's a match that's happened many times in the past just because they're both kind of seasoned vets at this point. But really cool to happen outside of Japan. Really cool to happen for the title. Saber yep. being kind of his right-hand man doing it in his home where he uh, is also the British heavyweight champion. Everything is really cool about that. Probably unlikely that uh, Suzuki would take the title, but, I mean, in an environment where we got two-day-long Wrestle Kingdoms, you know, anything could happen. So mm. I'm, I'm excited to see that, and at the very least, it'll be a great match, kind of like night one of the G1's Okada versus Tanahashi was, where we've seen that match a couple times, but it didn't make it any more or less enjoyable. Didn't make it any less enjoyable to see it again. Yo, how insane does Suzuki look? He looks like <laughs> a fucking insane person. Yeah, looks like a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Having Suzuki beat Okada clean in this manner is so simple 
and a trillion times more effective. It's it's just like, like I said, I don't sometimes I don't understand how WWE is missing the mark when New Japan is so to a certain extent just boiled down modern professional wrestling. I don't want to say no frills because that, you know, the the whole point of professional wrestling is frills, but stories being told in the ring with a promo here and there, but being that there's not promos constantly, every promo is so important and it I don't want to say it doesn't matter if it's delivered well or not, but it just it it's so important because what this entire show there was two promos in the ring the entire the entire time. So both those promos are like for the most part pretty fucking memorable. And mm. for a young kid who hasn't lived through decades of wrestling and will actually go back and watch for instance this show three or four times before the next big New Japan show. It's the type of thing where they might memorize what the promos are. Like, I only bring that up because I used to do that. You know, I used to be, I knew every word to essentially every Ultimate Warrior promo throughout 1990 because there wasn't a trillion of them. Um, and that's so lost nowadays in, you know, I don't mean to keep selling out WWE, even AEW. And I love the AEW promos and the YouTube shows, but it's going to be hard to ever reference a specific promo because there's already so many of them where mm. like uh, Suzuki's post-match promo could be a promo that's referenced for years. And, you know, I don't speak Japanese, but it doesn't seem like it was a promo that was delivered perfectly, but it doesn't fucking matter. Exactly. Yeah. Cause the message but, is there. And the fact that he's, speaking slowly and deliberately as Okada, the fucking world champion is being helped back down the, the rampway. And it's not like they had to do some crazy shit and hit him with, you know, a dump truck. He got hit <laughs> with a finisher and got pinned and he's fucked up the end. It, it's like the same thing. Like, I don't know much about Suzuki and I don't know much about Okada. Guess what? I can't fucking wait to see a title yep. match between Suzuki and Okada. Yeah. And honestly, it's because it's just it's just that simple. As someone that was at I, I went to my first WrestleMania this year and that match was my favorite. And like there was just the promo before it was it was like showing him and Daniel Bryan and and, you know, Daniel Bryan's story. And they don't really need to explain that to you because Kofi just says to him, uh, you know what all this feels like and you're scared and you should be. And like all, that's all it took, like for me to give a shit about that match was is those three lines, and it was like because I know the Daniel Bryan stuff, I know what he went through, and he just said that, you know, you know what this feels like, and you're scared, and you should be, and that it sold me on the match. And now I'm watching Roman Reigns rock around SmackDown, asking who drove the forklift that did or did not pin him to the ground, and I'm just like. You know, that's Buddy Murphy. No, it's not. No, it's Rowan. No, it's a guy that looks like a janitor that is wearing Rowan's thing. Like, you just have what's going on in New Japan, and it's like, it's hard to ignore how simple it is. Like, going back, like, I know you're not an Omega fan, but like the Kenny Omega Okada shit, simple. I mean, the Jericho Omega stuff, it's just simple. And then, like, everything is just boiling down to, you know, like, 
oh, I beat him. Like, I wasn't even in the thing. Like, why, why don't I get a match? You know, it's like when, when WWE does that, it is so, like, say give someone a belt. It's like, oh, be prepared for that person to lose all the time. Kiss my ass. This shit sucks. And I'm like, it just takes something of someone like Suzuki and Okada, two great wrestlers, simple story. And now, you know, you've been watching wrestling for most of your life, more than I have. And you can't fucking wait for this match. It's like, you're sold. You know, it's done. Like Cody and Dustin in AEW. That was easy. It was an easy story. And I cared about a Goldust match in 2019. That match was fucking incredible. And, like, it was just simple, like, storytelling between two family members. And it's just like, I don't know. Oh, and I want to say one last thing about Zack Sabre real quick. Zack Sabre, to me, is like the Beatles. Where if someone's playing the Beatles, I go, man, this is awesome. And then I go home and listen to the Beatles on my own time. And I'm like, I just don't like this. Like, every time, for some reason, I just think I don't like Zack Sabre Jr. But then every match I watch that he's in, I think is fucking amazing. That brings us to the main event, not only of this show, but of the G1 Climax in general. The final, the big finale, the winner to go on to face the champion at Wrestle Kingdom. It is between Kota Ibushi, the Golden Star, versus Jay White, the Switchblade. And they are going to wrestle for a little over 30 minutes of anxiety for me because the thing about <laughs> Jay White being such a heel is that he also pulls it off a lot, as we talked about. You know, he's been the champion already. So the idea of him winning is not unheard of, despite the fact that they built up Ibushi as this huge baby face. And a big part of this match, of course, is he comes out with this new Bullet Club, new Bullet Club meaning including Kenta, you know, which also gives me anxiety. And one of the most cathartic ma- points of the whole match is when, you know, the, the Bullet Club are ejected. It really was like a boost of mm. serotonin, really made me feel excited, like, okay, maybe Ibushi's going to do this. Uh, but throughout the tournament, he's been doing this thing where he kind of sets up the Blade Runner with that, that new brain buster that he's been doing a lot. And there's points where he hits that, and I was like, oh, my God, this is really about to happen. I'm about to have yeah. to see Jay White have another title match. But Abushi pulls it off. He is our winner. Um, before the match happened, I couldn't have cared less about it in the sense of it's one of the least interesting combinations of the Block A and Block B competitors I can think of. But they did a great job of making me really invested and care about it before it was all said and done. And you can't ask for much more than that. I mean, I thought the match ruled. And I think maybe you are dead on with I mean, I, I figured it was Abushi in, in A Block from the start, like, I thought that was kind of a no-brainer because once I heard he was doing that, like, lifetime contract with New Japan and all that shit, you know, not to take it away from him, the dude is an out-of-control worker, amazing storyteller, so it's like, I just knew it was him. And if anyone's taken that belt off Okada for a while, I feel like it's got to be him. Um, but, yeah, I guess everyone wanted to see Naito, but I think um, you might still get that, and you might get Ibushi having both belts at the end of Wrestle Kingdom, which would be cool. Um, but I mean, I just thought it was awesome. I mean, it really elevated Jay White for me and, uh, where I just kind of didn't give a shit about him beforehand. Um, I also think that, uh, well, <laughs> there was a part, I think it was Rocky came from the, the, the table and like went after Gato, who he was talking shit about Gato the, the whole tournament too. So like, I, I really like that too. Um, I don't know. I just, I thought it was great. It, it's tough for me to just kind of think back to, uh, the thing but i also just love um jay white is such a good like counter wrestler so sometimes like he really hits like hit the blade runner thing like out of nowhere um 
and I liked that they had that um, that Abushi had to hit two of his finishers on on Jay to get it, to get him down. So thought it was awesome. I thought it ruled. The moment of this match came down for me when Abushi really flipped the switch and just decided like, oh yeah, I'm I'm winning, and that came from two moments. One, that deadlift ass German suplex that he gave mm. to White, but easily the moment of the match in order top three moments casey case and we're counting them down number three guido being ejected from the match number two deadlift dash german suplex and the number one moment of the match is abushi dropping jay white with a slap to the face dude abushi is like a fucking god <laughs> you know he he looks physically he's like the perfect human the way he sells is not just – he's not just selling and he's not just putting over whoever you know he's working with. Within the scope of wrestling, it looks so real. So I paid you – know, I pay close attention to the whole match, but especially when White gives him the superplex, the way he sells the superplex was a little atypical of wrestling, but – just perfectly atypical that it it looks like he just got fucking dropped on his back from 10 feet in the sky but he couldn't go running away so little tiny things like instead of just oh I got super plexed I'm just laying down or I'm grimacing kind of leaning up on his one elbow and you know contracting his shoulders so like you know when people do that, like, oh, I just got hit in the back, and you kind of, like, you contract your shoulders and, and hold your back in, or you pull your back mm. in. That doesn't fucking do anything to make your back feel better. But that's what real people do. That's their reaction. You know, um, when you get hit in the stomach, your real reaction isn't to, oh, someone hit me in the stomach. Let me bend over, and then, you know, <laughs> Mr. Street Fighter will give me a sunset flip. You get hit in the stomach. You put both of your arms around your stomach and, you know, depending on how bad you get hit, you either double over a little bit or you, you fucking fall on your side. Um, so little things like that, to me, turn into really, really big things. And Abushi um, is great at doing that and his facials are always match it. And then his comebacks, like you said, Ryan, his fire is just, it's almost like he flips a switch. Oh, you know what? I'm going to win now. But it comes across properly instead of some guy playing playing wrestler and being like, mm. oh, now it's my time to win. Um, I always get sucked into his matches. So I guess I'm, I'm with you, Tom, where prior to this, I never gave a shit about Jay White. In all actuality, I always related him so close to Chase Owens that I was like, both of these guys are just fucking, I don't know, just fucking jobbers from high school. Yeah. Um, and then this this whole tournament is like, oh, Jay White is is a force. So I love that what White went uh, 0-3 to start the tournament, and Ibushi went 0-2. Um, and then coming back and being the finals, that's just fucking sick, man. So great, yeah. Absolutely um, fucking awesome. So like you said, Ryan, the Bullet Club getting kicked out of the ringside in the beginning – was just like, yeah, let's fucking go. Let's get down to business. And then uh, Gato being kicked out was even more so. Dude, when he comes back and gets 
gets involved and then he's hiding behind the ring post. It's like you said, it's that fucking, <laughs> he's like um, Muttley on um, Laugh Olympics and all the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. <laughs> you know, he's like the laughing dog and who the fuck is his, uh, Dick Dastardly, is that his friend? Yeah, um, I have a Burger King Kids Club toy of them if you want to play with them later. Did you just put that on the internet? Did I see I, you put this? I put it on the information superhighway, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, man, I, I just thought this was just a great, hard-hitting match. Like you said, that deadlift suplex from the second row, get the fuck out of here, man. Yeah. That finish, normally I'm not a double finish for the pin guy. But this match, it's just, it was so special. It's the only singles match of eight matches on a card. Plus, it's the main event of a grueling tournament. And it's, from my point of view, Ibushi's... Uh, Redemption story after losing the Intercontinental title. Um, so, like we spoke about the tournament being so grueling and Ambrose slow, uh, fucking Moxley slowing down, and hopefully that's a sign of the tournament just wearing on him. So, after the finish, both men lifeless, face down on the mat, as if they're Travis out of This Is Hell show. <laughs> Although that would be two songs into it two instead of it in, at sure. the end. And they just fucking lay there because it was a month and a half of grueling physical and, and mental anguish. Man, I was just so sold on this entire thing. And, you know, when I love the tradition, traditional Japanese match fanfare, I just at this point could not be more sold on Ibushi. And, you know, now I'm now I'm I'm all in for Jay White. So here's another thing that Ibushi did. It was like a it was like a comeback story for him, but it was also it felt like that for Jay White too. And I think Ibushi can be credited to that. Um, so I think at the end of the day, he wins and he also elevates Jay White. Um, and then when he goes and challenges, he want, says that he wants the Intercontinental title and the heavyweight title at this. Um, at Wrestle Kingdom, which is two dates this year. He wants to headline both days for it. Like, that also puts him over more as, like, a fucking superhero goddess, you know, nut job or whatever the fuck you want to call him. And it also gives some sort of importance to the Intercontinental title that he still wants it back. Everything with that match was just fucking perfect. Like, there wasn't anything that I would change. And it's just crazy that, like, that kind of booking capability can even go down at this point. You know, when I'm just so used to the like you know the clown stuff that's been happening and not even just wwe but like even sometimes like aew stuff like the librarian shit or whatever or, you know i don't know it's just it's just cool to show like people like how simple it is you know now you keep on mentioning this two-night wrestle kingdom uh, for abushi to claim both titles but as soon as that announcement was made i saw it the other way around that this is the opportunity for naito because he's kind of the one that originally said he wanted to be the first person to hold both titles but you're you're saying like it's a done deal that the bushi's the one that that makes that happen yeah I mean, you know I, what i, I feel like i said that very accusatorily and what i meant more so was i never even thought about it in the other direction uh, that, oh, yeah, yeah, that they've built up in this way uh i immediately when i heard that i was like oh so naito really will finally get to headline wrestle kingdom and win the world championship whereas what you're proposing is not something i should have just overlooked it's that of course that's a possibility like you just said they just let him win the G1. He's already uh, in line for a World Heavyweight Championship match. Yeah. He's the one proposing the match. So that makes things a lot more interesting for me. 
Exactly. It also makes like Naito more of a like more heelish with him just being like, "Oh, you think you're the fucking best because you won this shit? Like, then how about you fight me on Wrestle Kingdom on the second night? You know what I mean? Like, like him trying to take advantage of a beaten up Abushi. You know what I mean? And maybe they do a title for title thing. I don't know. Like, but dude, Okada could win. Like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I don't even think that's a given. I mean, obviously, it's likely that they're not going to book Abushi this great to just not have that payoff. But like. I mean, he might not even fight Okada. What if Okada loses it beforehand? You never know. Like, that's what's cool about New Japan. It's not just so, you know, laid out in front of you, even when you think it is, you know? And like again, and he's like, got think... to defend that title shot, too. He's, uh, I mean, Ibushi might not even make it to Wrestle Kingdom. Normally, uh, that's never happened before where they lose the title shot, but, you mm-hmm. know, they win this uh, briefcase, very Money in the Bank style, that they have to defend yeah. against anybody that beat them in the tournament. So he's still got two matches of possibilities to yeah. lose it so before the when this title when this final was put together i honestly thought it was jay white that was going to win and because they've never turned the briefcase over before wrestle kingdom i don't think that's ever happened before i may be wrong oh, no you're right i just okay so i figured what better way to have jay white come back and win this whole tournament to kind of cement him more but he wins it by some gato bullshit that that entitles abushi to like another rematch or something um, and then Ibushi gets it that way. So that's what I thought was going to happen. Honestly, again, that's, and, and in my head, that's just like the easy go-to because it's like, okay, eventually you're going to have to, you know, give that briefcase up. Like if you're going to keep defending it, eventually someone should lose it. And I thought what better way than Jay White winning it and then him losing it. And then they could even start a feud where then Abushi goes to win the title. And then whenever you revisit Jay White Abushi a year and a half from now or two years from now, it has like a whole embedded storyline that makes it so more intriguing, you know? So I don't know, but like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, we all think like in my head, I'm like, yeah, he could, you know, Abushi's going to be the G1 winner, the fucking, the two belts at the end of the, of the, of the Wrestle Kingdom. He could lose both of them. We don't fucking know. That's a, you know, like that's why like if any, but everything has a plan. So it's like, Whenever, even if they do something that makes you unhappy, like there's some sort of plan. The booking always has some sort of purpose. Everything has a purpose. And uh, like even like just Moxley beating Juice Robinson and, you know, that picture of him biting his face and all that stuff. It's like in the end, that was for Juice also. You know what I mean? So it's like everything has just such, such thought out purpose. It's just, it's the best. Yeah. To your point, I think the coolest part about New Japan and also NXT, uh, shares this is that there's so many possibilities and even if the possibility that you want doesn't happen you know that it's got a long-term plan that will pay off and be logical and rational so that's very exciting because you can't just immediately predict it and regardless of what happens you want to see what happens next and i think that's all you can really ask for in a wrestling show so it's it's awesome agree and honestly like I, i get laughed about this often but um NXT is probably my favorite wrestling of of all of all of it. Like I think it's also booked with purpose, like you just said. Um, the matches are also like kind of a hybrid between, you know, like the gimmicky stuff of WWE, which I still like, like the cage matches and the war games and ladder matches. I still like that stuff. So it has that with like the work rate of New Japan, and they also have like the sim- the simple stories. NXT is my favorite, so and that's that is I guess you could say it's WWE, which but I do consider it separate. But but yeah, I, I think that's definitely a good point where where you're saying that NXT does do that payoff stuff and 
and, and has good story continuity and whatnot. I, I think Brian and I might be kind of in the same boat with you that NXT might be all in all our our favorite. Yeah, NXT is by far my favorite wrestling show, and it's for this reason, in the sense that I trust it to, even if it does things that I don't, as a fan of a particular performer like, I trust it that whatever it does is for a reason, and it always feels mm. like the result of a competition versus a booking decision, and I really appreciate that. So, you know, I can think of a couple examples. For ex uh, We'll even take this EO thing. EO's my favorite wrestler. She didn't beat Shanna for the title, so in that moment, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so bummed out mm. EO didn't win. But now look, now she's this ruthless murder monster, and I'm psyched. So yeah, uh, she's on top. And, she's on top without the title, which is very hard to do in WWE, in my opinion. Exactly, exactly. So you know they've built up that that trust with the audience, at, at least me personally. It sounds like you guys too. Where when something happens, we didn't, we don't. Our first re reaction isn't, oh, oh no, now what's going to happen? Uh, mm. It's oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, Tom, man, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to join us and talk about half to mostly naked men wrestling each other in a 12 by 12 plywood. But uh, any any plugs you need to do? Anything Stray's up to that you want to talk about? Or New record coming out in November. Return all over. We're going to Japan in October. Then we do America. And then we do Europe and England. Then we do Australia. And then fucking, you know. Yeah. A world tour. A world goddamn tour. Fucking rad. Yeah. But I appreciate you guys having me on. Man. I had a fucking had a great time. Hey, man. Okay, so real quick, this is how I met Tom. You were just coming to shows, and you were young. So, you know, um, I wasn't even really old yet in 2002, but there's, you know, there's this kid, um, a little chubby kid with a big afro. <laughs> and he'll hunt you down and just say nice things about your band. And, oh, I have a band, I have a band. So I remember I got a Straight From The Path demo, and I listened to it, and I'm like, man, I don't even know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> with this with this compact disc so at that time i'm booking a festival with which has a trillion bands over over three days and i'm thinking man i really i'd, I'd like to put that that kid tom's band on this festival but i mean there's all these other bands yada yada so i get in touch with you it was pretty not last minute but you know pretty close to last minute it's like hey man i have a spot on this can you guys play so that was uh walk together rock together festival 2002 which i think mm. I think you guys might have straight up opened the festival. Yeah, we did. You might have been the first band on Friday evening of a three-day festival. Oh, no, 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 no. We didn't. We opened Saturday because I remember okay. Friday was like Become One and like Antarabe and like a love for enemies and stuff. But we, we, were, we opened the Saturday because I remember distinctively the Friday was like a six or seven o'clock start time and the Saturday was like a one o'clock start time. Okay. And I actually, I actually remember... You never told me. We, you never really asked me to play the fest. I, I I annoyed the shit out of you. Never heard back. And then I saw you at a subterfuge merch table in Eastport DFW. And I went up to the merch table and I said, "Hey Rick, did you ever think if we could play the show?" And you pointed to the T-shirt where we were on it, and that's how I found out. And I can remember that like it was yesterday. It was so sick. It was like the best day of my life. In 2002, I had all the power. <laughs> Man, talk about a band that legitimately started as just a couple friends fucking around and learned their craft and evolved and stuck with it. And man, it's been almost 20 years we've been friends now. And everything you're doing, it's fucking cool, man. I'm happy to uh, 
be friends with you all this time and have you in my life. And now we get to talk about naked men. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that a lot. I definitely owe a lot of where the band is now to you and, and your support for this band. And it's, it's definitely a wild ride. And like, you know, a lot of Long Island for some reason doesn't like really acknowledge Stray that much. Like, like I'll even, like, it's not that I give a shit, but I'll see things like, oh, newsday.com, top 10 Long Island bands. And then there'll be like bands I'd ever heard of and like patent pending and shit. And it's like, we're not even on it. I'm like, man, these people just forgot that we existed. So it's like, I appreciate that you were there for the entire ride of us, like growing up in Long Island. And like, and like you said, we're still here and it's, it's cool. And again, like this is definitely, we're in a spot that we wouldn't have been if we never got a chance early on when, and that's how like, we, that's how I figured out how anything worked was dealing with people like yourself. It, it all started when I pointed to a t-shirt. <laughs> we'll tell next time we'll go over how me and you met and how I've contributed to your band. Uh, just quickly i'd like to close it out and say that uh one month ago i went to the app on my telephone called discogs and i bought our own terms for twelve (laughs) dollars the very last goddamn thing and then i'll stop talking i promise you is when we went to japan for the first time uh in 2016 we did like uh, a promoter required meet and greet and we literally all lined up and people would go to each member and our, our drummer at the time, right now, he's only been on our last record. So they'd have, they'd have a stack of CDs. He would sign the first record. And then he, Craig would think that he's about to sign the other ones. And they'd go, no, no, you didn't play on this one. And then they'd go, to, they'd go to Dragon Neck and then he'd sign all the ones that he was on. And then they'd go to Drew and they'd sign all the ones that he was on. And then they'd come to me and I'd sign all of them. And then this guy, he had to be in his close to 50, had the Pride Records release and he made me sign that and i was like this is ridiculous like (laughs) how do you have this man adult man from japan all right well we want to thank tom again from straight from the path for joining us you can follow that band on instagram at straight from the path they have a new record coming out in november and they got a new world tour they'll be going out on a new world tour as opposed to their old world tour uh new world Tour order, New World Torter. Hey, that's not a bad name. Go ahead and uh, get the flyers rolling on that. But in the meantime, myself and Rick will also be going on a, a bit of a, a little weekend warrior tourier. Uh, Rick's man, This Is Hell, is playing in Brooklyn, New York, on Friday, August 23rd. Which, if you're listening to this the day that it comes out, it's right now, so you can probably still make it because nothing ever starts on time. And then what are the uh, other shows for your current band, Extinction AD? So we'll be August 30th, we'll be in Wallingford, Connecticut at Cherry Street Station. August 31st, we'll be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Chameleon Club. September 1st, we'll be at Montague, Massachusetts at RPM Fest, which is going to be really radical. Hey man, both of us are going to be at all those shows and fucking about. So if any of our listeners are in Brooklyn or... Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. Come hang out with us and we'll talk some wrestling instead of just playing some metal and or hardcore. Maybe we'll take some videos and uh, speak to some fools at the festival in uh, Massachusetts. Oh, we'll definitely be speaking to fools. And we'll definitely be preaching the gospel of the only two things that I know to be true. And that is that Rockstar rules and Amazon drools. (laughs) Bye. No one cares about this shit.